Welcome to the Wandering Bard Podcast. for joining me on the podcast today. I'm trying something a little bit different, which is an interview. This was actually recorded pre-pandemic almost a year ago at this point, but because of podcast listenership being down due to people not commuting to work and various other reasons, I've kind of been sitting on it till now. I was sitting on my front porch playing violin at the time, and this gentleman walked over, and he ended up being a luthier who was a neighbor of mine. And we started chatting, and I told him about the podcast, and we, we had a lot of similar interests, and we set this up. And it's interesting, at the time, I didn't really know him too well. I think this might have been only the, the second or third discussion that we've had. And uh, since then, we've, we've gotten to know each other pretty well, and I, I've used him for a lot of my violin work. And it's been super helpful having a, a luthier so close, but outside of the convenience, Rich has done a lot of really good work on my instruments, and he always turns it around very quickly as well. So if you're in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, and you need some work on a violin or, or cello, uh, he does some other stuff, viola work, and he doesn't just repair, he builds as well. So if you want something commissioned, definitely check him out. As I've said in the past, I'm not one to disparage anyone on this podcast. I like to, to keep the vibe positive, but if I didn't believe in something, I just wouldn't recommend it. But Rich is definitely a step above the other luthiers that I've used. Now, this is my first interview, so go easy on me, but if there's suggestions or recommendations you might have, shoot me a Facebook message, put it on the Facebook post when I make this, Instagram, email, whatever whatever you guys want to do. The story is really interesting. Rich has a lot of cool anecdotes from his time becoming a luthier and how he found that path and his family history and some, some pretty cool violin stories of specific instruments that I always find pretty cool myself. I did have one other anecdote before we go into the interview, and I was contacted by Rose McMahon in regards to my episode on the Banshee, if you guys listen to that. And she said she is actually James's granddaughter, not his daughter, and that he was born in 1893, not 1900. And one final thing is that he was born in County Fermanagh, not County Monaghan. So... Thank you, Rose, for sending those corrections. And uh, if you guys have any other corrections, de definitely please let me know. A lot of these things, they have different sources that might say different, different things about different topics. And uh, I definitely want to be accurate. So if you're ever listening and you know something about a topic that I either didn't mention that you might think is important or got wrong, you can shoot me an email and I'll make the correction on a subsequent episode of the podcast like I'm doing right now. Or you can go in the, the Facebook chat, I think is probably the most visited of the forums where the podcast is available. Okay, so with all that being said, let's jump into this interview with Luthier extraordinaire, Rich Maxim. So I'm here with Rich Maxim. Rich, welcome to the Wandering Bard podcast. Thank you. You are the first person that I've had as a guest on the podcast, so I'm, I'm sure this is huge for you. I'm honored, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here, by the way. First, I'd like to start a little about yourself, uh, your Luthier, uh, how you got into it, and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, what I always tell people is that I'm a, a fifth generation luthier, and my family goes back to the uh, late 1800s with violin making. To tell the story about myself, I always like to go back sort of to the beginning of where the violin came in with my family. The, the first 
maker was Otis H. Maxim, who was uh, born in 1854, and um, he played violin professionally as he was growing up. I don't know exactly how he came to start playing the violin, but at some point he turned professional and played in orchestras, and he played for at least a decade or so, and then he started a family and found that it was difficult to have a family and be a, a professional musician. So he uh, decided that he would do some extra work to try and uh, supplement his income. So he started working in a sawmill until one day there was a tragic accident and he cut off three of his fingers on the left hand of God. all places. And that effectively ended his professional playing career. I've, I've heard that he did still try to play uh, but, you know, he just couldn't really play the way he had. But he loved the violin and didn't want to give it up, so he decided to start making instruments. And because he had been a professional player in Erie, Pennsylvania, which was a city that uh, featured a lot of traveling orchestras in the, in the early 1900s, he had the access to a lot of musicians. And having played himself, he knew a lot of people, so he had the ability to get a, a clientele to visit him pretty quickly. And so he went from being a player to being a maker and dealer and a repairman as well. And so he did all of those things and established a shop. And then his son worked with him and um, was there for some time until he went off on his own. And then my grandfather grew up visiting Otis at his workshop when he was little. And he was always just inspired by seeing him work. And then um, he decided to do something else growing up during the Depression when it was really hard to make it as a, as a violin maker. But when he retired, he decided to go into violin making and set up his own shop at home. And he did some work for other shops in the area. And then my father was the only one that really didn't do any making, but uh, he went to school for violin performance and then got a couple PhDs in uh, musicology. And he ended up becoming a violin critic for a Fanfare magazine. He does uh, all the violin recording reviews and interviews players. So I grew up um, with in that house where I'd hear music all the time. And um, I started playing for when I was about three or so. And it's just, it's always been a part of my life. I know, from, from even before I was born, uh, my dad would play while I was in utero. And um, so it's just, it's always been such a natural part of my life that I've, I've heard the violin around me and I've, I've grown up watching my grandfather work in his own workshop. And so it just, it was second nature to me to, to be around the violin and to play. So I, I grew up playing and, and played in orchestras and had a, a little career as a, as a solo artist, and I'd play in orchestra, I'd play in quartets, things like that. Um, after, uh, after getting into college, I started getting more interested in violin repair. And my grandfather passed away when I was a sophomore, and when that happened, uh, all of his tools and books and everything went to me. And I just started devouring everything that I could, trying to learn everything that I could about 
repair. And uh, I decided that I would go to one of the summer workshops at the University of New Hampshire. My dad and I kind of came up with this plan that I would go and just see, try to get my feet wet a little bit and try doing some violin repair over the summer to see if it was what I wanted to do as a career. And um, I found that that really was exactly right for me. And so from there, I started going to other workshops. And then after that, I um, applied to the Chicago School of Violin Making after graduating from college. And I was, um, I was about to leave when I, uh, I started thinking that it would be good just to get a little bit of extra tool skill before going to uh, the Chicago School. And it just was happenstance that I had discovered that there was a maker in my hometown of Lynchburg. And I'd never even known he was there all the years that I lived there before. But I was, uh, I was on a violin website one day, and I saw that one of his violins was there on consignment, and I was just really blown away by it. So I looked him up in the phone book, because it was still at a time when you could find people in the phone book. And... Uh, he answered, and uh, I, I told him that I was interested in just getting some basic tool skills, you know, learning to be more proficient with chisels and gouges and violin-making knives. And so my plan was really just to get um, a little bit of tool skill, but um, we just hit it off right away. And so I went over to his house, and we talked for a while, and at the end of that conversation, he said you know, I think what you ought to do is just come make a violin with me. I think I could, uh, I could teach you. And I think that would be the best way to learn to just work together. And, you know, I'll, I'll work on my violin and then I'll show you what to do. And then you'll spend some time working on your own. And so I decided to do that. And I deferred going to Chicago in favor of working directly with, uh, with Danny Smith. And so I uh, I worked with him. I made my first instrument, and then I worked on his on his instruments a little bit. And after that, I was um, coming up to the point where I needed to decide about going to Chicago. And he said, "Well, I think if you stay for about six more months with me, I can teach you enough repair that you'll be able to apply to a shop from there." And I thought, "Well, that's exactly what I'd like to do." So I decided to stay with him, and I spent some time doing some repair work. And then from there, I applied to a violin shop. I went to Potter's Violins in Bethesda, and I worked for there. I worked there for about four years or so, and then started working at the Violin House of Weaver, which actually shared the same building. And I've been there since about 2015. And then I, uh, I worked at uh, Dave Islands in Chantilly for about four years. And then about two years ago, I started my own business doing violin repair and restoration. And that's, uh, that's where I am today now, uh, doing violin repair, restoration, a little bit of bow rehearing as well, and just kind of growing up the business from there. All right. That's a, that's a great story. Did you feel like... Like for myself, for example, I'm a first generation musician. Like I didn't have this like thread through generations of musicians like you do with, you know, violin and violin making. Did you feel an obligation on any level? Was it a was it a calling? 
do you think your your interest would have happened regardless of that? It's a difficult question to answer in some ways, but I think what I what I tend to tell people is that I just I've always felt like it was in my blood and there's never been any question for me that I wanted to devote my life to the violin in some way. There was uh, there was a period of time where I was trying to decide whether I wanted to, to uh, be a professional player or to go into violin repair. And um, it was that was one of the most difficult decisions of my life, really. But um, I just, I really felt like there was such a, a full, uh, vibrant career for me in, in violin repair. And I, I loved the idea of carrying on the family tradition. And so that appealed to me so much. And I've, I've always had a fascination with history and with understanding the development of violin making and passing along the time-honored traditions of, of a 17th century craft. So I, uh, I was just always really drawn to that. What was your career as a, a solo artist like? Like, what did you, what kind of music did you do? How successful would you have considered yourself? Is it a thing you ever, you know, think about still? Well, I do think about it on quite a lot, but I, um, I played classical music primarily. Um, my father was classically trained himself, and um, so he, he was my teacher from the age of three till I was about 23 or so. Um, and so I, I played most of the classical repertoire. I, uh, I would play with, with the pianists quite a lot, but I started giving solo recitals when I was in eighth grade, and then I would do at least one recital every year until my uh, my senior year in high school where I did two kind of as a end of the end of high school celebration but uh, I I did a lot of solo work I did some work for East Coast Entertainment Company with my dad and we'd play uh, wedding gigs and we'd go to uh, other like business association meetings imagine having a violin critic as a father was a bit of a dual-edged sword maybe or yeah i would say so um it was a very interesting way to approach playing the violin i think because having somebody that had such a all-encompassing understanding of violin playing was something that could give me a lot of room to come up with my own approach to it I think that my my father shares a lot of my fascination with the the history. His fascination is more with the the history of playing and with the uh, the passing on of a lot of violin te- technique, you know, from from the old Italians all the way down to the present. With recordings and stuff like that being a bit of a a newer invention, how do you, how does one study the technique of 17, 1800 players? Well, there are a couple ways to do that. One would be by careful study of the, of the music itself. People that uh, work in musicology are able to piece together a lot of things, you know, sort of in between the lines. And um, by 
understanding ornamentation and the composition style, you can you can learn a lot about the the performance practices of the day. The other thing is just to look for literature that talks about that. There are treatises by some of the, the big players of, of the past that give a lot of information on technique. Uh, Leopold Mozart, uh, the famous <laughs> Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's father, once or twice, yeah. wrote a really excellent treatise on playing the violin, and it's, it's one of the most authoritative treatises for uh, violin playing of that time. Uh, people still read it all the time today, and it's, it's still considered a, a really great historical record of how to play the violin. Do people, because I come from a, a folk tradition pretty much entirely, so I'm, I'm curious, do people try and go back and, like if you were to compare contemporary playing versus the playing that you're talking about in these treatises and things like that, are people trying to perfectly replicate like the playing of that time? Is it kind of like a niche thing that people do just kind of for fun? Well, that's where you get to one of the biggest arguments <laughs> that's going on today, actually, because there is a group of people that believe in what's called historically informed performance practice, which is um, an attempt to get as close as possible to the way the music sounded at the time it was written. So that includes playing the style as, as carefully as possible in the, in the same manner and with the same equipment. So a lot of period instrument players will yes. play Broke Baroque instruments, yeah, Baroque bows, will use gut strings and try and hold the violin in the same posture to get as close as possible to the same sound that would have been heard at that time. And so there's a certain amount of speculation that goes into that because we don't actually know everything about what it sounded like at that time, but we can try to approximate that. And so there's been, over the last half of a century or so, uh, a big move among academics that are interested in early music to try to recreate that sound. So that's the one side of the, of the argument. The other side is one that's just more interested in simply playing the music and there are a lot of people that will play what we would call early music, but with a more modern approach. So using more vibrato, a different bow style. And that argument is more that music is timeless. So the approach to it doesn't necessarily have to be from one, uh, one particular style. But um, I don't think that there's one right way to go about it, but there are just a couple different approaches. And what, what makes the music so great is the, uh, the fact that you can approach it from different perspectives. How much do you know about this, the, the Depression era, and was it your grandfather, great-grandfather, was making instruments during that time period? My great-great-grandfather was making instruments uh, right until the Depression, pretty much. Yeah. He actually closed his shop in 1928, so right before it hit, actually. And he went into retirement. I think his, uh, his health was starting to decline at that point. And his son had already left and moved out of state at that point, so he was sort of by himself. And um, he did have an apprentice working with him, but I don't really know 
a whole lot about um, what The Apprentice was doing at that time. I've seen a couple of his instruments, and I know that he inherited or bought a lot of the workshop from, from Otis when he closed his shop. But, um, yeah, he, he closed down right before the Depression hit, which was probably a great thing for him. And he had a retirement, well, not a retirement home, but he had a, um, a sort of summer cottage that he had gone to during a, during all the... There was a summer cottage that he'd visited uh, throughout his career, and he just went to live there after closing the shop. And then eventually, once his health declined, he went to stay with his son and finished out his days there. But the uh, the shop was was completely closed before the depression really hit. But my grandfather, who was born in 1919, grew up right during that depression, and you know they they had really nothing at that point, and it was it was a pretty difficult life. And so he did have the advantage of having an instrument that had been given to him by his grandfather. But um, other than maybe taking a few lessons, he just didn't really have too many options available at that time. It was, it was a hard life, and he just had to find work where he could. And so that's why he took more of a... Uh, that's why he went into uh, plumbing and construction more, because it was... Kind of what I was going to ask, yeah, were people still buying instruments like that during the Great Depression, or, you know, it's... Well, there were people that were buying instruments. I mean, great instruments still sell, no matter what happens, um, but it's a lot harder to sell, you know, in general, during difficult times like that. Can you talk a little bit about this uh, this violin that was in this shop that made you call the first person that you studied with? I mean, I'd imagine you'd seen lots of violins up to that point, but the fact that this yeah. one was like, oh, I got to go to this guy. Well, there's a, there's a company called Johnson String Instrument, and they have a, a pretty nice collection of, of violins that they sell. They, they do all kinds of business throughout the country with, with rental level and student quality instruments, but they also have a pretty nice collection of, of modern instruments by very good makers. And so I was on their website just kind of looking to see what they had. Uh, I was particularly interested in what they had among the American makers. But when I saw that there was this violin by Danny Smith, I was just really amazed by it because the, uh, the workmanship on it, even, even from just looking at pictures, I could tell that it was, uh, it was really beautifully made. The, the wood selection was great, and it had the look of a classical instrument to me. You know, it wasn't... Uh, it it had the appearance of being sort of a light and um, carefully crafted instrument. It wasn't bulky and chunky or anything like that. It it looked like it an instrument that would uh, it would be a, a pleasure to play. And so I immediately was was drawn to that. And you know it was so exciting to me to know that there was a violin maker in my hometown because there there had been maybe a couple people. Um, throughout the history of the city that, that had gone into violin making, but there was nobody that I was aware of that was uh, currently making. And then all of a sudden I found that there was somebody that not only made, but made really beautiful violins. So it was just sort of a, a perfect circumstance to, to find that. What is the American violin tradition 
like can you describe its characteristics at all well american violin making is a lot less standardized than violin making is in other countries or other parts of the world it wasn't really something that was uh th that existed really in in the country until the the mid to late 1800s really uh prior to that violins were always imported and so from colonial period until you know right before the civil war people would be importing instruments from germany or, or france and that was really the only way of, of getting a violin but eventually uh, people started getting interested in making and there were a lot of people that lived up in the mountains that wanted their own instruments and it was not so easy to come by uh, a good instrument you know you couldn't travel so easily and there weren't violin shops the way there were in Europe so people would see a picture of a violin in a newspaper or somebody might uh, go on tour and they'd see the violin and they'd say wow I want one of those and so there were a lot of self-taught violin makers that uh, started making and passed on their tradition but there were also a decent number of violin makers that emigrated to the United States so you have the, the two sides of the coin. You have makers that were teaching themselves and makers that came with a training in Europe or other countries and brought that to the United States and started their own process of um, sharing that with other, other makers. So people that are very knowledgeable about American violin making will say that there are sort of different schools in the or different regions in the U.S. that have their own style. There's sort of like a recognizable New York school style, and there's sort of a Boston, Massachusetts area style. Um, and there, there's even been sort of a, a Washington, D.C. style. There was a, a maker in the area that uh, had his own violin-making school for a while there. And so there are sort of recognizable schools hmm. interesting what, what would you say you're you're you originate from if you had to put yourself into one of those well the man that taught me to make violins was self-taught as a luthier he was uh he, he had a, a he grew up playing fiddle a little bit and um, had an interest in in playing the instrument but he was in the military uh, in the Vietnam era and was stationed in Germany and had the opportunity to see some really nice old German violins while he was there. And seeing them really encouraged him to get into the, the trade a little bit. So when he came home, he started buying a lot of instruments and taking them apart just to see how they worked and did a lot of repairs on them. And from there, he decided, you know, instead of taking them apart all the time, maybe I should just make my own. And he had uh, the really great advantage of knowing these two brothers in the, in the Lynchburg area who were just polymaths. They were skilled in all kinds of different areas, but they were especially good wood carvers. And one of them had an interest in violin making. So Danny got together with him, and they read everything they could and studied up on, on violin making and started making instruments together. And then from there, Danny 
started going to the Violin Society of America and took his instruments for competitions and he started talking to some really great makers and uh, he's always told me that one of the biggest moments of his life was going to meet Carl Becker who was almost a god among American violin makers and getting some criticism from him and some guidance suggestions for how to make his violins or you know what to do to optimize them really changed the way he approached violin making he's always been especially interested in trying to replicate a Cremonese style of making you know within within practical reason he's been interested in the Cremonese method of violin making for for a long time and so he decided to pick just one particular model he had a violin that he'd played for a long time and really loved and he knew that that violin was a copy of Paganini's Guarneri del Gesù the canon and so he said well I know that I like the canon so I think I'm going to use that as my model so he made his own templates and mold and everything and then from there just used that over and over and so all the violins he's made in his career have been on that one form is his his philosophy has been that he wanted to find a model that he really liked and each time he'd make a violin he would just modify maybe one small thing so that that way he could always track what he was doing and he could say well you know i did the corners this way on on this violin and i don't know if i like that as well so maybe i'll do it a different way the next time but by doing just small changes at a time just little incremental changes he could try and see what had the biggest impact on on his instruments that's uh even when i first started playing violin i always i would read books about luthiers and violin making i never had a any intention of ever even trying that but i always thought it was so interesting just like the um the level of detail that you guys work with is so precise like this tiny little you know millimeter change here will change some perceivable level of performance with the instrument i always thought that was like really interesting do you yourself have a specific model or style of instrument that you would say you typically build within as far as style I would say that I like to follow the Cremonese approach to a to a good extent. Uh, as far as the model, I have a couple that I'm I'm using currently. I have you know because I was I was working with Danny Smith. I I also made a, a Canon model violin for my first one, but I uh, I have a Strad model as well, and I've I've got several other templates and and molds that I just I haven't used yet that. Um, that I intend to use later on, but I'm, I like to find instruments just like Danny does that, that I've, I can have some idea of what they'll sound like. Um, so I, there's a really beautiful Strad, the, the Titian Strad that's known for not only being a, a great looking instrument, but a great sounding one. So I, uh, I chose that. There's also a, a really great wealth of information available on it to uh, to use for for guidance but i would say there are a few different approaches to making um, you can be a copyist or you can be somebody that just designs completely from scratch um, 
you can you can be more of uh, like a blend of the two. So if you're if you're working as a copyist, the uh, the idea of making a copy can be to try and recreate the violin as exactly as possible, and you can get as detailed as you want with that. Uh, there are there are a lot of makers that will actually take the original instrument and have it on the workbench there. And when you when you do that, it's called making a bench copy. And so you have the opportunity to really examine every single detail from every angle so that you can try to match everything. So you can you can try to get all the measurements to be exactly the same. You can try to reproduce the varnish as much as possible. And then there's of course trying to match the sound. But the uh the both amazing and frustrating thing about violin making is that if you take two pieces of wood and carve them the exact same way, they're not going to sound the same necessarily. So as a copyist, you have to decide what it is that you want to copy. So you can try to copy the exact form of the instrument, or you can try to reproduce the sound, or you can just go for the working method of the maker. So there are a lot of people that are interested in Guarneri Del Gesù as a maker. Um, a lot of people are really impressed by his working style because he was, he was a very fast workman. And... You know, a lot of people would say that his instruments are crude because he would rush through certain things, and there's a lot of tool marks that show up, and some things are not really very precise. But at the same time, he seemed to have this really great understanding of what was the most important for tone. So he made these instruments that are some of the most valuable in, in the world now. And so people are saying, well, maybe he knew just what he needed to focus on. So if we can try and figure out how to work in the same style, you know, maybe we'll, we'll be on to something. So there are a lot of copyists that will say, okay, my, my challenge now is to take my training that I have working really slowly and, and carefully and just push myself to work even faster, but really only focus on certain aspects and you know, let other things maybe be more in the periphery. So that's that's the approach of copying maybe the the spirit of the workmanship, not so much the uh, the exact millimeter measurements. Choosing wood, how important is that in 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 the process? To me, it seems like it's the foundation of violin making. I could be totally off base on that. Is it? Yeah. It's a very important part of the process. Um, some people will start the process with choosing the wood. Some people will start with the model first. It doesn't doesn't necessarily matter. Oh. You can approach from either either direction, but regardless of that, what wood you choose is is important. Wood is a natural product, and it's it's not something that's completely regular. You know, the the grain in a piece of wood will change throughout it because the way a tree grows, you know, it has some seasons that are that are heavier, or colder seasons some some that are more temperate so the the way that the grain grows can vary quite a lot and so as a violin maker you're looking for wood that has certain characteristics of it you know if it's spruce you're looking for something that has a pretty nice straight even grain but um you can you can kind of focus on the the width grain spacing on the on the spruce stradivari was known for using a, a really, really 
narrowly grained spruce and um, right where he joined the halves of the top it would come to a really really precise fine grain and so a lot of people will will search for wood that has that look to it uh, as far as the maple goes there's all kinds of different ways that you can go about choosing that um, or you can even choose a wood that isn't maple but um, you you have to decide whether you're going for the appearance of the wood or you're going for the way it responds to certain tests uh, there are there are several different ways to measure the way that the the wood will perform some people will go for wood that's been aged for a certain amount of time um, there are also different ways of preparing wood for making it well one is the you know the natural process of just letting it dry but there are other surface preparations that people will use for for wood to try and get it to a state where it will uh It'll be easier to work with or will hopefully produce better tonal results. What do you think about the violin as a... I think some people might say two schools of thought. It's intended for music and you should only care about how it sounds. And then there's also you know, the aesthetic appeal of the instrument as well. How important do you think each of those things is do you fall in any one of those camps i think that you can't separate those aspects of it because aesthetics are important to the instrument in the in the sense that if an instrument is something that you just can't stand to look at it'll always frustrate you um now saying that the instrument should sound great like obviously we want every violin to sound as good as it can but the problem is that there are violins that sound good but are in really bad structural condition. And so you don't want a violin that's going to fall apart on you. You need something that's going to be in good enough condition or you know, will be made in a way that it's strong enough to withstand playing. And that, that's why we have some violins that are as great as they are that have stood up to centuries of use. They were designed well enough with a, a good enough understanding of how wood would respond over time that they can withstand all that playing so violins are really an amazing object because they're they're intended to be used constantly so it is really important to find something that's that's made well and that's that's something that comes up a lot for people that are getting into buying instruments because you know it's as a player the tendency is to say i just want whatever sounds the best i mean that's that's just the knee-jerk reaction to, to seek whatever will sound best, but that's not always the best way to approach it because it's, it's very easy to end up with something that'll be a liability that way. Uh, so I often recommend to people that are looking to start with something that they can be really confident in as far as the workmanship goes first. And once you have kind of narrowed that down or you've, you've found some things that you feel will be in good enough condition that they will last you for your you know intended playing time then you can kind of narrow things down from there and you can find something that really sounds great and then you can focus on the sound but only after having found some things that you can really rely on when you're building instruments do you typically to have multiple going on at one time or do you just focus one from start to finish i like to have a couple going I think that's it's a nice way of working 
just because you can sort of leapfrog the two. You know, you to some extent, if you're if you're making a couple of them, you can keep the same tools out. You know, and so it's efficient in that sense. But um, at some point, you get to the you get to the point where one gets a little bit ahead of the other, and then you can you can work on one, get it to where you like it, and then try and bring the other one up to that level. So you can sort of have two instruments that are your own in competition with each other, and it, it kind of gives you that impetus to try and adjust a little bit and you know not just give up on one and say that's good enough but to actually keep going and you know if one is turning out better then you you're you have that pressure to try and make the other one work as well and often what happens is you work on the second one and it starts to be better than the first one and then you have to go back to the first one and make it as good or better so that that can be a really useful way of doing it a lot of makers that um, are pretty prolific will have several going at the same time I think two is kind of a kind of a perfect number to work on um, if you're if you're not working on a really large scale. But um, if you're making you know twelve islands at a time, then you know it, it's a little bit different consideration. When you pick up another maker's instrument, is there a, a level of judgment? Do you see it as like art, where it's like, well, maybe I don't like this, but it's their interpretation, and so it's just kind of like anybody's like what is what is good music i don't know it's hard it's hard to say i'm interested in the the parallels between violin making and violin playing and then a broader conversation the playing of music in general like do you assess other makers as better or worse or just different well i try to be careful about being too judgmental of of makers whenever i look at a violin there are things that i look for um and kind of determining whether it's something that I, I like myself. A lot of it comes down to the, the workmanship in it. Um, there are certain things that you can do with a violin to make it easier to play. You know, getting the, the arching really good, getting the, uh, the neck shaped to a way that it's comfortable to play, getting, getting the corners, you know, nicely, nicely made, shaping the F-holes really beautifully. There, there are some things that are just really good calling cards for the for the violin maker you know like getting f holes and and corners and you know purfling in those are things that really show your skill as a maker because they're they're things that are very visible and they take a lot of skill in execution to to bring off well so those are things that you can always look for just to uh, kind of gauge the the level of proficiency with with the tools but Again, the violin isn't simply just a, a box, you know, that that you can make more precisely or less precisely. There's there's more to it than that. So there's there is sort of an overall impression that a violin will have. So you have to look at all those things in evaluating it. Do you, within your own making, do you try to deliberately specialize in any specific? part of it do you ever like look at i want to have like awesome scrolls or the the best f-holes or um or you just kind of improve the overall making with each instrument as you go and let it develop naturally i wouldn't say that i specialize exactly in that i mean with with each violin there are things that i want to improve on you know i, I might say well you know, I wish I could have done my F-holes a little bit differently on the last one, or, 
you know, I think maybe I'll do the um, the corners a little bit differently. Maybe maybe I'll change the way I did the arching. You know, I might want to change the way that it, it comes out under the fingerboard. Or, you know, maybe I don't want to have quite as tall an arch in the middle as I had on the last one. There are things like that that you can, you can change. But for me, they're all aspects of the, uh, the whole of the instrument. So the, there isn't really one that is necessarily more important. Is there any any part of it like let's say you had to you had to pick one thing and someone said Rich Maxim had had the best whatever what what would that thing be I'm not sure I mean I I might I might say arching but I really don't know there are there are several things that like I was saying can kind of show off your skill and you know like carving a really nice scroll is something that everybody kind of looks at and uses as a tool for judgment but i mean i i always strive to make violins that sound good and so i i want to be known as a maker that has a good sound but also uh, i want good workmanship overall but it, it's hard to really specialize on one aspect of violin making in itself what do you make about those crazy scrolls dragon's heads or the roman head shapes and stuff like that any thoughts on those they're they're kind of fun just as as diversions you know every once in a while somebody will will carve a head and you know put a like an, an old man's head or you know lion head something like that and they're 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 sort of interesting as as um as one-offs something like that but i've always been really impressed by the uh, the shape of of the scroll it's sort of a classical I mean, really an ancient uh, form, and it has sort of that mathematical appearance to it that's really pleasing to the eye. I've always been a lover of symmetry, too, so, you know, I, I enjoy seeing the way that the uh, the scroll unfolds, and a lot of people will use the golden ratio in uh, constructing the scroll. You can you can actually use that to create a, a regular curve that, that makes a pretty nice violin scroll that way. You had mentioned... Uh a fiddle that had been handed down for, from your family had like some kind of gypsy association. Yes, that's yeah. right. So that violin, there are a couple stories with that. Every, every violin that's been in my family has its own story, but this one is probably the one that's the, the most special to me. It was made by my great, great grandfather in, uh, in 1918. And when he made it, I don't know if it was the first person that, that owned it, but it, uh, it went to a gypsy violinist who played in a traveling band. And he had that violin for several decades. And he was, in a, during a, he was uh, taking a break during one of his performances, and uh, somebody tossed him an apple. And just as a reflex, unfortunately, he dropped the violin to catch the <laughs> apple. And the violin hit the floor just the wrong way, probably bridge first, and it shattered the top. Fortunately, the back wasn't damaged at all, but um, the, the, the top was broken into several pieces. And so the, the player was just really distraught, but he went back to my great-great-grandfather and showed him the violin, and he said, well, I can, I can get it back together for you. So he put it back together, and he continued using it for the rest of his career. 
and was very happy with it. Um, when he got older and decided that he wasn't going to play any longer, he knew my grandfather a little bit. Because he was, you know, even though he wasn't really doing any violin work professionally, throughout his whole life he'd always had an interest in it, and he kind of kept in touch with people that had violins from his family. And so this old man got in touch with him and said, I think I'd like to, to sell this violin. Would you be interested in it? So my grandfather went and uh, took my dad with him, and it was, it was sort of perfect timing because my dad was, was young and needed a, a good violin to play at that point. And so they went and visited the, the old man and bought the violin, and that became my, my father's primary instrument. And so he used that in high school. And he, the story is that he was at, uh, uh, he was playing at a rehearsal for one of the orchestras he was playing in. And during a break, he claims that somebody must have opened his case because when he came back after the rehearsal or after the break ended, he uh, picked up his case, and when he picked it up, it was unlatched, and the violin yeah. fell out onto the floor. I think so, every violinist has done that at some point, at least. There, there are a lot of stories yeah. like that, but my, my, my dad always says that he would never have left a case unlatched mm. you know, after he walked away from it, so he, he thought that maybe somebody had wanted to see the violin and had kind of opened the case while he was off getting a snack or whatever, and they left it unlatched, so he didn't realize that. So violin fell out onto the floor the same way it had the first time. Oh my God. So it shattered again. And at this point, my great-great-grandfather had been long dead. He wasn't available to repair it, but um, my grandfather was sort of getting into repair at that point. Hadn't really started making his own violins yet, but he was, um, he was doing some repair work. And so he took that violin and did some work on it and got it uh, got it back together and so my father kept playing it but it just it didn't quite sound the same after that second repair and so after that when my dad went to music school he bought a, a really nice violin and just played that and then this one just kind of stayed at home and stayed in the case for a really long time but um, as I was growing up my dad would tell me the story about this violin. We always called it the broken violin. And every, every so often, my dad would get it out and let me look at it. And I was just fascinated by that violin. It was one of the most beautiful violins I'd ever seen. And I loved the story of, of how it had broken twice. And I didn't really care whether it sounded good or not. I just, I really wanted that violin. And so my dad told me, well, when you, uh, when you get big enough, you know, maybe, maybe I'll give this violin to you and it can be yours. So as I was getting to the point of being ready for a full-size violin, my dad, seeing how much I loved that instrument, talked to my grandfather again. And he said, do you think there's a chance that maybe you could, you could work on it again and see if there's anything we could do to try and bring it back to the way it had sounded before? So he took it apart and um, did a new restoration job on it and he brought it back and my dad was just really amazed that it, like it, it sounded the way it had before and so 
when I was ready, I got to play that violin, and that was my primary violin for most of the time that I played, and I'd, I've always just had this immense admiration for it. And so I was, I was always a little bit nervous because it had had so much damage to the top that it was, it was a little more fragile, but um, it just sounded amazing, despite all the repair work that it had had. And then, lo and behold, one day, we found out that there was another violin that um, had been in an Amish community for some time, and it was the violin that had been made along with that one. What? So it's like the same wood, same, same time period and everything. It was sort of the twin of that violin. And somebody had it and was looking to sell it, and so I ended up getting that violin. So it was almost like being able to see what that violin was like when it came off the workbench because wow. that one had been played very little and it was in pristine condition. So it was just the most amazing thing to track down another violin that was made the same time and had all the, almost all the same characteristics. That's an incredible story. Really interesting how certain violins can just speak to a person. Like you even said, like this one instrument was like, had been repaired twice it was old your dad like wasn't even playing it but it's like you were like that one is the one that i want you know yeah you know i think it really surprised my dad you know i mean he he always enjoyed that story about it you know how it had been broken twice but i think he had expected that i would take an interest in a different instrument but this one just really appealed to me and i, I just couldn't stop looking at it i just wanted to get it out all the time which of the two sounded better well, they were different. Um, they they both sounded really great, but they had different different tones, despite being made on the same yeah. uh, same mold and with the same wood. My uh, my great great grandfather bought this huge log of maple, and a lot of his violins were made with that same wood. It's just really beautiful, deep flamed maple, and I've never really seen anything, that, or I haven't seen many things that really match that, but. Um, they were different. The, uh, the one that had broken twice was a little sweeter, um, didn't have quite the projection of the other one. The other one was a little more powerful. How much did the repairs change well, the character? They, they probably had some impact on that, but I'm not, I'm not entirely certain because, I mean, as, as a part of doing that, the, the violin had been revarnished at least once, and so there were there are a few things that had changed. So it's it's hard to know exactly, but I mean th this is going on a memory from decades before. But my my father said that after that final restoration, it sounded the way it had before when he was when he was growing up. So I think that's probably pretty close to the way it sounded at least before the second break. But I don't know for sure, you know, just how different they were originally, but. I would imagine that they were fairly different even from the start. Do you still have them both? My dad. My dad you, oh, okay. All right. All right, we're going to play a tune here together in a minute. So you picked this. Can you tell us the name of it and give us the, the any story or anecdotes behind it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I've always felt really privileged to have learned about the violin from so many great people. And one of them, who I had a lot of interaction with, was a fiddler named Robbie Wells. 
he lived in the Lynchburg, Virginia area, um, and he had his own shop there for, for some time. When we moved to Lynchburg, he was uh, set up and had a little shop called Fiddler's Alley where he um, sold a little bit of instruments and he did some repair work. Um, he had a, a pretty active teaching studio too. He was he was a um, he was a very very good fiddler and played in bands and did some touring. But he had an interest in learning to play classical violin a little bit more than he he did at the time, and I had I'd grown up playing some fiddle in addition to the classical music, but I'd never really taken any fiddle lessons. Exactly, and so my dad made this deal with him that they'd trade lessons. So my dad would teach him a little bit of classical style, and he would teach me some fiddling. So for a couple of years, I uh, would go over every once in a while and uh, learn some fiddle at his shop, or he'd come over and play with me. And so I just really got to know him and learned a lot from him. And actually, he was one of the people that uh, was very encouraging to me when I got into doing repair and making, and I spent a little bit of time doing some repairs with him in his shop early on. But um, he wrote some of his own music, which I've always really enjoyed. But there's one song that's sort of known as, I think, probably his, his, uh, his trademark, and that's a song called By the Waters of the James, which is a, this really beautiful both the melody and the lyrics of tune about living in Virginia, establishing a family there being, you know, on the banks of the James. And so it's a, it's a tune that I've, I've always loved and I, I play it whenever I can. I try to share it with people as much as I can, because I think it's just a, a beautiful tune. I, I would really like for it to be our state song. I think it would be perfect. So as you're going through the phone book and, cold calling to people basically and showing up on their doors and going to study with them. And, you know, you're growing up in this household with your, your violin critic father. Are there any other people that um, were particularly influential in getting you to where you are now? Well, I would say for me, the most important person that's, that's influenced my career in violin making has been Otis, my great, great grandfather. Uh, to me, a lot of my goal in life is to carry on his tradition. It's something that has been so important to me. And I've always been amazed with what he was able to accomplish. And so both as a maker and a, a repairer and a, a businessman, just being able to establish a shop and um, have it be successful for such a long time, that's, that's been something I've looked up to really all my life. And so, you know, a lot of people would say that if they wanted, if they could go back in time, they'd want to go to see Stradivari or, or Guarneri or, you know, some of the, the great Cremonese makers. But Otis has always been my, my hero and my, uh, my template for, for work. And, you know, I, I have great admiration for the classic makers, you know, the Amati family and Stradivari and Guarneri, of course. I've always been amazed by what they were able to accomplish and makers like uh Santa Serafin, the Venetian maker, um, Jean Baptiste Viome, the great French maker. I've seen several of his instruments that just really inspired me. But um and working with Danny Smith, 
um, getting to know him both as a maker and as a, as a person, he almost, he's become sort of an adoptive father to me, uh, over the, over the years that I've known him, but, um, he's somebody that I've always really admired and looked up to. Is there like a modern day Cremona where it's like, this is the hot spot for violin making right now? There are a lot of places that are fairly hot spots right now. Cremona itself is Cremona again. It's had a resurgence. It has. So the, uh, the, the story with Cremona is that it was, um, it was a, a cotton or flaxseed producing, uh, yeah, a flaxseed producing town, uh, in the middle ages or so. And then in the, uh, early 16th century, violin making became part of the community there. And with the establishment of the Amati family, the violin was developed, and that style became the dominant form for the instrument, and it, it became the violin that we know today. And Cremona went through this golden period, as we call it, where there were just all these really incredible makers producing instruments that were just fantastic. And that lasted until sometime in the 19th century and when the last of the what we consider the great Cremonese makers died it just sort of disappeared um, at, at the same time that makers were dying out there was more of an industrialization of the violin making process and um, there were different places in the world that were starting to become more dominant like Mircor in France or Paris even and um, in, in Germany, there were a couple large violin-making towns, Mittenwald and Markneckirchen. And those were such huge production centers that they started to overtake Cremona. There was also a lot of plague and famine that struck Italy. There were all kinds of political revolutions that were going on, and a lot of makers were just killed by, <laughs> by war or virus, you know, at, at that time. And so a lot conspired to sort of end that golden period of Cremona. And so there was a long time where it was almost forgotten that Cremona had been the center of violin making. There were historians, of course, that remembered that, and there were all kinds of books that were still in existence about Cremona, but people living in Cremona had pretty much forgotten that there had been a great maker there anywhere. And, you know, Stradivari's house was, I think, a cafe for, for a long time. You know, I mean, it was just... Yeah, it was it was really forgotten. And then I would say probably in the 70s or 80s um there was this resurgence 1970 in 1970s. Yes. Okay. Yes, there was a resurgence in interest and Stradivari's house was renovated and turned into a museum. They they started to take much more of an interest in preserving the history and um some of the great violins that were still in Cremona that were you know, original Stradivari or Guarneri instruments started being restored. And all of a sudden, there was this influx of interest, and more people started getting into making in Cremona. And there was a new Cremonese violin-making school established. And um, with that, there started to be a new growth in interest. And I think now Cremona is starting to hit a peak again, where there's, I think, three or four hundred different makers living there and working, and um, it's 
it's become sort of the epicenter of the world for violin making again. And are they, where do they fall in the school of, are they replicating the old strads and granaries, or are they now pioneering some new method? Well, I would say that the Cremonese school today is still a very traditional school. Um, I would say, though, that some of the, the working methods of the modern Cremonese school are somewhat different from those of Stradivari's time. So if you looked at a, a modern Cremonese instrument, it wouldn't exactly look like a Strad necessarily. It would, it would share many characteristics, but the, uh, the style of Cremonese making has changed a little bit with, with the, the passage of time. And I think some of the people that, that came to teach in Cremona have had a different approach to making and so it's it's not it, it it's not really an attempt to make more strads but more to reestablish Cremona as a violin making powerhouse again where can if people want to look up your shop or your products where can they where can they find you is there anything else you want to throw, throw out there to the world if they want to check you out oh yeah um, well, you can look me up on maximviolins.com. Um, I also have a Gmail, maximviolins at Gmail, if anybody would like to ask any questions or get in touch. Those would probably be the easiest. Okay. All right. Uh, shall we give this tune a try? Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for being here, part of the Wandering Bard podcast. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. All right. Let's play this tune here. So there you go. Another episode in the books. Thanks for checking it out. Thanks to Rich for participating. Make sure you check out his website. And uh, good luck to everyone in, in the new year. We only got one direction we can go. So good things are on the horizon for everyone. And of course, as always, be bold, be kind, and safe travels wherever your wandering takes you.